Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Ethical Panda family of podcasts. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 79, which begins with S.H.I.E.L.D. agents keeping watch and ends with Eric expressing doubt that Jane can convince people of what she's found. Joining us on the show today, as we've had every day this week, are Miles Stokes and Elizabeth Alley from the podcast Thor, The Lightning and the Storm. Um, To both of you, happy Thor's Day. It's Thursday. It's Thor's Day. We always celebrate by asking people... What is your favorite Thor moment? This can be from a movie. It can be from What If. It can be from a comic. It can be from the back of a cereal box. Like, whatever it is, what's the best Thor moment for you? Elizabeth, I'm so excited to hear yours. Okay, well, I have many good moments, but the thing that sprung to mind is uh, Thor in Endgame when he revisits the Dark World era and talks with Frigga. Like, that is like ultimate, like, broken down Thor. You know, he's... He's been through so many cycles, you know, Thor has to grapple with the same problems over and over again, like many of us humans here on Midgard. Mm-hmm. And to see him kind of at this low point, really expressing his vulnerability and his failure in a way that he's so ashamed of and his mother just like lifting him up and connecting him with another Mjolnir, like it's just such a good healing moment and it feels so satisfying one of the things i love so much about his character is that it is the you know the idea is often like a bad person did a bad thing if i kill that bad person everything will be better again and he does that he wins at the start of that movie and nothing gets better and and right that scene with his mother is just so healing and so important miles what up for yourself Oh, so my favorite Thor franchise moment is the Executioner's Last Stand in Walter Simonson's Thor run. But that's not a Thor moment, so I think technically it doesn't count. So instead, I will speak of the Frog of Thunder. I will speak of the time (laughs) in that same run where Loki turns Thor into a frog, at which point he leads the other frogs of Central Park in battle against a bunch of alligators, and then finds Mjolnir, knowing that Loki's going to do some really bad stuff in Asgard, and even though he's a, he's a frog, lifts it up with all of the frog energy he can muster, and then becomes, as the cover puts it, a six-foot fighting mad frog, and goes to attack Loki and uh, threaten him into turning him back into an Asgardian. It is the most <laughs> epic story of a frog wearing a red cape I have ever seen, and I recommend it to everyone. It is also an homage to a, an old uh, Carl Barks, Donald Duck story, from what I understand, because Walter Simonson loved Carl Barks. So really, no matter what angle you look at this story from, you've got a winner. So it even has some romance where he wins and then breaks a fair frog princess's heart. Oh, it, It's this entire, like, frog world epic in the middle of this Thor epic. It's a delight. I, I have two things to say to this. One is, I know one of the old adages that, like, parents let your kids uh, get into comic books because then they'll never have money to buy drugs. Clearly, they don't need drugs because they're going to get the hallucinatory experience from this. But my other thing is, uh, did you watch the Loki TV show? Yes. Oh, yes. What what level of excitement did you hit then when we got just that one <sighs> shot in a pan to Frog Thor? Oh, my God. I was so excited. I was just like, it's here. <laughs> it's here. Even if we don't focus on it, it is. it exists in one of these worlds. So thank you. Yeah, I definitely squealed and shook my wife's shoulder next to me while just making excited, incoherent faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... 
I, I imagine it may be because they were being made at about the same time, but if the next season of Marvel What If does not have an episode entirely about Frog Thor and all that, a, a great opportunity has been missed. Uh, well, thank you so much. We're going to get more into all of that right after this. Do you want to wear some Marvel Movie Minute-inspired clothing this new year? Or maybe you're looking for a mug with our mugs on it. Find what you're looking for at the online store. Go to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute and click on Merch. I would just comment that we have two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, but um, Andy reminds me that it is Agent Garrett and Agent Kale are the two agents who are up here on this roof. Uh, Andy, have we talked about these two and their actors before? Um, we, I, I believe that there was a point when we had the, uh, the shield invasion of Smith Motors taking all of, of, uh, Jane's scientific gear. I thought that I saw the two of them in this particular moment. So it's entirely possible that they were, uh, seen before. Um, but this is definitely the moment for them to shine. This is their little moment that we have these two agents up on top of the roof across the street from Smith Motors and they are, uh, they're spying, they're uh, doing the S.H.I.E.L.D.'s dirty work, watching uh, what is going on down below in Smith Motors. And you can tell, like, they're, they're keeping an eye on. It's not the most exciting thing going on. Uh, but they've got the binoculars, they've got the listening device. Uh, uh, the radio tells them that Team 2, we've got activity outside of town, so they should be steady. Uh, and here there's a whole deleted scene that we'll talk about. And I do have the actor information if we'd like to do a quick little IMDb game for them. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to set you up for that, but I thought you skipped ahead. So, you know, go for oh, it. Oh, no, yeah. Agent Garrett's played by Dale Godbaldo. And uh, this is person that, uh, you know, is probably somebody that you're not going to recognize as much in, in film projects. So I'll just go through what IMDb says are the four projects he's most known for. The first is American Crime Story, a TV show that he uh, appeared in for an episode. And the second is this, Thor. Third, we have the all-new Mickey Mouse uh, Club, which he appeared in as himself back when he was young. And last but not least is the most recent Perry Mason show. So, uh, you know, he's somebody, he's he's definitely keeping busy out there. The other actor, uh, played by Patrick O'Brien Dempsey, is a face that you might recognize. Um, Do any any of you know uh, this person and what he might be known for in in films that he's been in? Oh. That name rings a bell from somewhere. Mm. Like Patrick Dempsey, I think was a like a soap a soap opera star in the eighty or maybe like on not on Dallas but something like that. I don't know if it's the same. I doubt it's the same person. Guy from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, that's a different Patrick Dempsey uh, uh, yeah. actor and Grey's Anatomy actor. But uh, no, this is Patrick O'Brien Dempsey, and uh, he's definitely somebody that if you watched the the fantastic uh, hockey movie Miracle, he was one of our hockey players in that movie. Um, that's what he's uh, IMDb says he's most known for is showing up in that. Second is Thor is this brief role here. Third is as doing some stunts in CSI New York, and third is doing some stunts in the TV show house definitely somebody that i think he took his hockey skills to uh, to the film industry and ended up doing more stunt work than anything else but that seems to be what he's mostly known for i have not done an episode by episode watch of house but it's not the show that i think of having many stunt people on but i guess there was you know some <laughs> some action every now and then yeah, it um, happens yep so and so then we cut to uh loki's plan b as was discussed that he's not just going with heimdall uh he's releasing the destroyer and 
I want to know more about the Destroyer and what you all think of it, because this is like the, you look at the Destroyer and everything about it says evil robot. You know, this does not look like the thing that like good and pure people build to protect their good and pure world. Um, and I wonder, like, is this a remnant of Odin and the Hela days? Is that is that where like this is from, like when like Asgard was much more of a conquering power? I mean, in the MCU, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's absolutely the case, yeah. Uh, in the comics, the Destroyer's been around for a while. Uh, someone has to generally pilot the Destroyer. You sort of, like, merge your mind with it to make it go do whatever it's going to do. And uh, what I see when I see the Destroyer is that that sure looks like a, a Jack Kirby design, huh? Um, I believe that was from the old <laughs> Silver Age Thor that mm. uh, that, that Kirby drew. Um, and yeah. I appreciate that the Destroyer's design is pretty similar to that of the comics. Like, it's a little spikier, a little, but otherwise it's like, no, that's just the Destroyer. And it lives up to its name. It's so terrifying looking. I mean, it is an enchanted suit of armor. So it is like this disembodied weapon of destruction. And I, I love the way you talk about it, the... Um... The Silver Age, because yeah, it has this almost not like Art Deco, but it's almost like steampunky, you know, in terms of like it's it's it looks like a wonderful fusion of magic and technology, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that it, it's it's basically a robot, but you don't think of it as like it's not like a high tech thing. It's like a yeah, magically you know powers suit of armor. It's almost like a like a golem of some sort. Yeah, that's a great yeah. description for it. Right, right. I I really love what they did with the Destroyer here. I I, I find that you know the 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 way that you run it, I guess it's a little confusing in the film. It just seems to be something that the whoever is the king, whoever is uh, has Gungnir in his hand, is able to kind of control it and have it do what it wants. But it, it seems to be like, one, it's a protector of the vault. And so if something is touched, I mean, we only ever see it really active when the uh, the casket is picked up. Um, when it comes out and destroys all the frost giants, again, it's activated because Odin seems to sense something, strikes Gungnir on the ground, and that releases it. But it seems to be something that uh, there's some direct connection with the vault anyway. Now, outside of that, I mean, it also seems to understand language because, I mean, here we have Loki giving it some very specific instructions. And so I guess that was you know, a question I had is like, where, where does, is there a delineation with what it's saying? Like when Loki says destroy everything and he's sending it to Midgard, I mean, what's his intention to destroy the town, to destroy Thor and everything that he's been in contact with? Or is he really wanting to destroy all of Midgard here? I, I'm not sure. What did, how did you all read that? From what I remember from the comics, the way you control the destroyer is to merge your mind with the destroyer. So I feel like more he's speaking out loud because we don't have thought bubbles in the movies, you know? So sure. he, he has a very specific goal and I think he is using kind of imprecise language, but I think he's giving him fair reign to do whatever will stop Thor. If it's destroy that town, sure. If it's destroy Midgard, sure. But your goal is to stop Thor. The collateral damage safety protocols have been turned off for this particular mission. And and it's interesting because even just the language of, you know, my brother, like that, this machine, that's not a search string that a machine would necessarily recognize. Like it has to know this Thor person is the brother of Loki. So it's an interesting, like, there's a level of like knowledge or intelligence to this, this thing, but it's also clearly just a machine, you know, a mystical machine. 
And I I enjoy that Loki's language is kind of imprecise and emotional in, in, in its choice of words here. Like, Loki has a plan, kind of, but mainly what Loki has <laughs> is a lot of anger and a lot of pain. And that's what we're seeing here, I think, more than do this and this and this and this. He's just lashing out with the most powerful, destructive thing he knows of. Right. A thing that, like, you don't even know if he really realized this, but way back when he was first discovering he's a frost giant, he was almost killed by it before Odin had to kind of jump in when he first touched the 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 thing. Yeah, that's right, because in the in the in the script, uh, Odin is when Odin screams out stop, we um the way that the film is shot, it seems like he's saying stop to Loki for picking up the casket, but in the script, it's he's yelling stop at the destroyer because the destroyer is coming out to destroy Loki in that moment. So yeah, right. good point. Which again shows that there it's not a very intelligent thing because it's like anybody who touches it, you know, gets yeah. gets gets fried. A monkey's paw. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a part of me that always wants to know the tech details. You know, I want the, like, you know, D&D to publish the exact stats of the Destroyer. But in some ways, I like it because I, I think it does, it reinforces, at least for me, that this isn't just a piece of technology. It, it is, there is something mystical or beyond understanding about it, that it is a magically infused thing, not just a, a built robot that you can, like, build with Asgardian tech. That being said, if you ever did want details, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe that has been published over the years would give you more than you ever, ever wanted. Oh, sure. That was the <laughs> thing. That. Yeah, that, that was the thing that told us at one point that the way Cyclops' powers work in X-Men is that his eyes are portals to dimensions of pure force. What? Wow. Which is really? the most incoherent, glorious explanation <laughs> for anything I've ever heard in comics. And it's like never been referenced again, except as the occasional joke. But like on our X-Men podcast, we remind people at every opportunity, remember, dimension of pure force. That is technically <laughs> canon. <laughs> wow, canon, literal awesome. head cannon. Literal headcanon. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I have missed podcasting with you, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. As, as someone who runs a podcast on the Star Wars universe, I feel like I can't really make fun of anything for the ridiculousness that is when you go deep into our canon on all the details on all the alien races and things like that. All right. So um, we get that great scene on the Destroyer. It really is great kind of framing what's going to happen next. Uh, and then we cut back to our friends, the W3 plus S as we take them. Uh, talking about them in the notes, walking down the streets of Puente Antiguo, and uh, we see a couple businesses. We see yes. uh, Third Street Bicycles. We see Bank of America, another little bit of product placement. And uh, the people in the town are once again, like, just like, you get, this is a kind of boring town. You get the sense. Like, there's not used to, I'm from New York City, a couple people walking down the street in armor, carrying an axe. Like, it's not that out of character. I'm guessing here, it's a little different. I was wondering if all these people maybe had just seen Superman 2 and were like, oh, what? Is this Zod and, like, his people? Like, that's exactly <laughs> what they look like, like, walking through Houston. So. <laughs> uh-huh. Houston, that's right. That's right. It's, the, the, the thing that stri- stands out the most for me as I watch these moments is that how artificial their armor looks in the natural sunlight that we have here in this particular scene. It's like, it's just, this is the moment where, I mean, we have a, a call out here from, uh, from Agent Garrett up on the roof. Is the Renaissance Fair in town? Yeah, it's because they look like they're wearing fake armor. And it's, it's one of the frustrating things about the costumes in this particular, um, 
period of the film is I, I end up struggling with the look, um, with the way that they look here in Midgard. I especially noticed that with Volstagg's acts because and it's funny. Uh, by the time you hear this, it'll be a couple months later, but um, so I don't mind a, a minor, minor spoiler, but in the TV show Hawkeye that's just come out, it's coming out as we're recording this, there was just an episode where there's a, a visit to a group of people who are LARPers. And, you know, I in the LARPing world, you're fighting with what's often referred to as buffer weapons. You know, it's weapons made out of like styrofoam and things like that that are then painted to look real. That is exactly what Volstagg's axe looks like. It looks like a piece <laughs> of styrofoam. It is so... So much of this, like, I guess all the money went to Asgard and they, like, the props department got shafted, I guess. I don't know. But, like, yeah, the armor and, and weapons in the scene are just so off. And I don't know why. It, it seems like they were designed to be shot on stage, right? Like, the, the way that they were probably colored and everything. It, it very much is designed for that artificial light. And it's just the moments when they're under the sunlight. They just, they end oh, up carrying something, like, a look that just doesn't look like they were... Um, I, I don't know. I would think that they would have had budget to kind of, you know, create alternate versions of them for the different lighting schemes, but uh, maybe not. Mm -hmm. As much as I, I completely agree um, with, with, with both of you, but at the same time, there's a part of me that kind of likes the fact that the Asgardians don't look quite right here mm -hmm. on Midgard, that likes the fact that, yeah, they do look like LARPers, that people are just like, I, I have no frame of reference for this. Based on our day-to-day -day <laughs> life, this is ridiculous. Like, that right. adds a bit to the, the fish-out-of-water humor that this whole movie plays with. I mean, they are yeah. completely out of context here. You know, I like that they didn't put them down there and be like, we're the gods, we're the all, you know, know-all, be-all. Like, they're in a new place, and they're like, what's this place? This place looks different. Like, they, they, they absolutely are out of place. And I think that it's, I would almost think it's an intentional choice just to play up the comedy. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely possible, yeah. It, it plays up the comedy, but also it makes sense. You know, like, if his axe looks like a completely realistic steel axe, I would think, but there's no steel on Asgard. It's a different planet. You know, like, it, it, it is fitting that it looks different, but yeah, I also like the, the comedy aspect of it for sure. And then we have a little bit of that with the, um, you know, the, the guards up on the, the shield agents up on the roof with the, uh, we've got Xena, Jackie Chan, and Robin Hood coming through here very much feels like that they're they're mocking the whole renaissance fair thing so i mean yeah i mean to that end it is kind of fitting to the way that it does play here um, speaking of things that look artificial i don't know if any of you noticed i mean we're going to talk about the deleted scene here in a moment but we have a shot as we have hogan sif and fandrel walking up the street and and volstag is like several you know um you know steps ahead of them walking far ahead and i don't know if any of you noticed but he was actually digitally added into that shot it technically was just a shot of the three of them because they pulled that from the deleted scenes because volstag in this particular moment is actually up on the roof about to confront the the two fbi agents up there but if you look real carefully you can kind of tell oh volstag was actually digitally added after the fact okay I wondered why they had no description for Volstag. I was like, who's yeah. Volstag then? Like, why are you only talking yeah. about these three? Because Volstag's kind of the biggest and most imposing of all of them. Yeah. He's the only one who's openly carrying a weapon. There yeah. is that. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, that said, we, we've talked in previous episodes about uh, the fact that Volstag often gets turned into a fat joke. So maybe it's for the best we didn't get an overly simplified yeah. claim. Like the Jackie Chan nickname for Hogan is already a little. Yeah. Eh, so it's, it's a little. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. 
I, I just have a feeling like if they said anything, it would have related to dwarf because again, like as you've pointed out several times, uh, Matthew, he does have very much a Gimli sort of feel. And considering yeah. the popularity of Lord of the Rings films, you know, a decade before this film came out, you'd think that that would have been anything that they would yeah. have said would related to that. And just on that side, I'm glad that you point out the Ho- the Hogan as Jackie Chan is kind of you know in the same way like. Xena is a warrior woman. Sif is a warrior woman. She looks nothing like Xena. So it's the same kind of like, all right, but, you know, fair enough. Um, yeah, and and so then we get to, uh, uh, we cut back to the, the auto shop where all of our heroes are. And Eric is saying that, you know, he likes Jane's theory, thinks it's a beautiful theory, but she won't be able to convince anyone. And it's it's interesting to me that, like, Eric is a very consistent character in that no matter what is happening, he's trying to convince Jane that it won't work. You know, it's like he always has a new excuse, whatever the new thing is. And I I think he works well as a a foil for Jane in that regard, because, I mean, you know, Jane is a character who, when she was introduced in the comics, her main job was to be in love with Donald Blake slash Thor. She was a love interest, and that was her personality. And so seeing her transformed from that into this independent scientist i like the idea that she's the one who is breaking rules who is taking risks who is driving the plot and so having somebody like eric selvig who can really uh really contrast with her i think uh helps helps highlight that agency that she has is her theory uh that apparently he's she's pitched to eric and that he seems to really genuinely like now is it the, all the stuff that thor told her up on the roof about the realms and Yggdras- yggdrasil and uh, all of that like what's what at this point or is it specifically just that he's traveling here through this uh, through the bifrost which is essentially an einstein rosen bridge any sense I mean, I got the feeling that the, it was the more relevant point as to where Thor came from, just because of how they then illustrate that point. And like, I think there's supposed to be a little bit of implication that there's kind of a connection in that, you know, she has noticed all, some of these other things over the last couple of months that led her out to that desert. And, and like, because he is a very hand wavy blink and you miss, blink and you miss it moment. But he's sort of saying like, oh, yeah, all these other things you've been noticed, you, you're seeing Yggdrasil the tree. And so I, I think the idea is supposed to be that her research is leading her to more than just this one port, you know, wormhole or whatever, but to actually have a better understanding of Yggdrasil itself. But we don't get any explanation of that, which is good because it wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> little too much. Little but too I much, think that yeah. that's kind of where we're going there. Uh, we have a pretty substantial deleted scene, even without the part we talked about yesterday. So is there anything else about this minute itself before we actually I, I want to throw in one little thing. Just again, the humility part. And it's so subtle. Thor's washing dishes in the background. And like compare that to the guy in Asgard who was smashing dishes, throwing over tables. Mm-hmm. It's just such a nice little like he doesn't have to be in the center of this conversation. He's literally just doing servants work mm-hmm. as he would understand it. And also just the fact that he's in the background, period, is kind of a big deal. It's a very different scene, but it almost makes me think of Mad Max Fury Road, the scene where Max goes off to kill a bunch of bad guys. And, like, we focus on Furiosa and the women that she's with, and we don't get to see what Max does because he is there in... in a role of, of, uh, of helping, of assisting, of support. Like, the camera doesn't need to be on him, which, of course, ties in thematically to the movie itself. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here as well. Like, in past scenes, we would almost never see Thor just in the background doing a thing. He's always front and center, like someone's talking to him or he's talking or he's fighting or whatever. I think it's very well put. 
Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Speaks well to the journey that he's that his whole character's on, the whole point of the story. A journey into mystery. I mean humility. <laughs> <laughs> to a multiverse of uh, humility. All right. Well, let's talk about the deleted scene. Andy, uh, you want to kind of give us a quick rundown of what happens in this deleted scene? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we have a little bit more with uh, Agents Garrett and Kale up on top of the roof as they are watching Thor cook breakfast and then kind of just some comedy there. And then, yeah, it really continues with the actual arrival of the Warriors 3 and Sif as they walk across the Puente Antiguo town limits. And really, it's just them walking through town, people looking at them. They have a whole conversation about the last time they were here in, in uh, Midgard. And then, uh, they split up. Volstag smells something, which attracts him up to the roof, and the other three walk up the street uh, toward Smith Motors. And uh, and that's essentially kind of what we get here that leads to their arrival. There's only one more moment that I wanted to comment on, because I think that the two of you were going to talk about it as showing more of Volstag's character, is there's a scene where a baseball uh, bounces out into the middle of the street uh, through one of the worst throws an eight-year-old has ever had as a of a baseball, and I was an eight-year-old who threw baseballs very badly. He's supposed to be pitching it. He throws it off the wall. I have no idea why, but it, it <laughs> bounces under a car, and Volstag literally like lifts up the car to pick up the ball and then hand it back to the child, who looks amazed because a man just picked up a car. And then it didn't mention the end of this minute, the, the deleted scene with Volstag, where, you know, the whole food gag, he he follows his nose up to the roof where our two agents are eating Burger King. He clocks their heads together uh, to knock them out. The burger flips into the air. He grabs it, takes a bite. He says, never cared for spies. And then as he takes the bite of the burger, he says, exquisite. So, yeah. That, that that's what I referred to as like no is a product placement it's the it's the character specifically being like you know I I have to imagine that if this scene had been in the movie we would have seen ads of just you know that moment exquisite come try the exquisite <laughs> the Burger King near you um, it's like those old cigarette ads and sitcoms from decades ago yeah <laughs> right right exactly so so what do you get out of this deleted scene oh there's there's so much I. I really like that most of this deleted scene. Uh, mm-hmm. As, as I, I know, Elizabeth, you and I both talked about how we wish to remore Warriors Three in this movie, but the Volstag part that we were just discussing—not uh, not the Burger King part necessarily, but the uh, his interaction with that kid—like we get to see two things. We get to see a that as guardians are superhumanly strong, which. I feel like should be showcased more in this movie. Like the fact that as guardians are not just really good warriors, like they are gods. They have superhuman abilities. Lifting a car is not a big deal. Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah. And we also get to see Volstag in this kind of parental role. He's great with kids. And by the end of this scene, this kid's genuinely smiling with delight and glee and thanking him. She's clearly very comfortable. And that's a huge part of his personality in the comics, like Mm. easily as big as the whole like gluttony thing that's often played for laughs. Yeah, I guess the way you're describing him, he's more of like the big teddy bear type, Mm -hmm. you know, who has a he can get violent if you need to. But really, he's like just super cuddly and great with kids. (laughs) What I see in this scene is Bronog's like Shakespearean connection, particularly to Hamlet, because with Kale and Garrett, they're suddenly transformed into like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Thor. Like they got a little more <laughs> shtick. They're observing everything. They're commenting on everything and, and used for humor. Especially because what their commentary is a little bit of the absurd, because in the there's a joke where they're clearly bored. They say, what's Thor doing? He's eating eggs. And then, you know, the, the higher ups ask them, fried or scrambled 
you know, as if that would ever possibly matter to anything. But that's the kind of thing you got to point out on. I'm just imagining Tom Stopper doing a Rosencrantz and Guildensterner dead style thing with these two agents. Oh, that'd be amazing. It's coming soon to Disney Plus. What fun would that be? <laughs> I mean, probably <laughs> everything else is. <laughs> exactly. So one thing that I ended up having a question about, uh, and I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this, especially knowing so much about the Warriors 3 and Sif from the comics. So they talk about the last time they were here a thousand years ago. And my understanding is, you know, we, we know that Odin was here battling the Jotuns back in 965 AD, which is, you know, I mean, a little more than a millennia ago. Uh, so, I mean, how old are these four? Are they, I mean, because Thor and Loki were just babies at the time that all of that was happening. So if they were here a thousand years ago, would they have all been here as kids? Uh, kind of in like, I guess that would be what, 1011 uh, AD? Uh, any sense of that? Or are they as old as Thor? Or they they wouldn't have been here like with Odin as warriors during that battle. Like, they aren't that old, are they? I feel like Volstagg is older than the rest, but that's just my own gut feeling. I would have seen them as being more like teenagers or young adults a thousand years ago, come mm-hmm. to Earth for hijinks, you know, to come and yeah. rabble right. rouse and, and get adulation and adoration and then leave their mess behind. From what I recall, they're all roughly peers. Like, I know there have been at least some scenes of Thor and Sif growing up together, and I think the Warriors 3, that was the case with at least Fandral. Oh, man, you're really you're really testing our, our continuity knowledge here for <laughs> uh, for our expertise of one specific run of the comic for like three years. Sure, right, right. But uh, but yeah, I know that uh, with it with at least Sif, like she is a peer. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, in the MCU, that certainly implies they were at least not like babies. Presumably, right. you know, they were in some kind of Asgardian daycare. They weren't just unleashed on Earth. Yeah, because it's interesting because yeah. we know that Loki was a baby at that time. Because the whole point is that Odin found him when he went back yeah. at, at right, that right. point. And, and yeah, it, it also just kind of like because they're specifically talking about how different it is. And I, I would think part again, I keep harping on this, but like New Mexico is not Scandinavia. It's a very different kind of climate and culture. And I. I have to imagine they went to Norway because that's where like or, you know, Scandinavia, wherever it was. But, you know, again, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else from this little minute that uh, uh, I think we've said pretty much everything needs to be said about the product placement, exquisite burger. Um, I did. I, I, I liked the um, I definitely did like the uh, the baseball moment. And I think the other thing for me is that so much of this minute, we'll talk about it tomorrow. It feel it, it doesn't feel like the people are seeing aliens from an other world it feel they i think if you were in this town you'd think wow is there a movie being shot you know is there a ren fair in town like these look like humans who are just weirdly dressed they don't look like asgardians or aliens until this guy literally lifts up a car that for me is the moment where it's like oh oh that's that's what humans can't do mm-hmm. and i mean right, exactly. i guess that might be an argument for having that scene not in the movie because if that happened like, there are other people on the street. It's not a crowded street, but there are other adults around. So, like, somebody would notice and freak out, presumably. Also true. There, yeah. There is the part also with Volstagg, though, where he is uh, following his nose to the uh, glorious Burger King. 
that is very cartoonish the way it's portrayed. Like he is just sniff, 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 sniff. Like you can almost see his his nose like cartoonishly expanding and contracting as he does this. <laughs> it's a very Toucan Sam kind of kind of moment. Uh, maybe I don't know. What, what do you all think? Is that is that sort of over the line of the type of humor that this movie is going for? It's a little silly. And also, is this town big enough for a Burger King? I don't get that feeling. We've talked a lot about this town feeling uh, inconsistently. Um, small for how large they say it is it's supposedly over 2000 people live here but it looks yeah. like a town of maybe 200 if that and so it's it's a constant uh, I, I mean i, I was have. a bank of america customer for some years and i didn't find it quite this easy to find a branch in any literal small town you know yeah right right it's a little too cartoonish for me as far yeah. as Volstag. It's it's one of those moments like these are those moments that they put in here. And I'm like, gosh, I wish you found other ways to use these characters because I think they're interesting characters. But like this sort of comedy, just I just don't find that it works that well for me. Yeah, it, it definitely feels more kind of the juvenile stuff that I don't associate with with the way this movie came out. The one thing, just backing up a second, the one thing that I would say that makes me like that scene with Volstagg in the car, and yeah, maybe you need to shoot it differently so it's not about the people, is that we've seen earlier in the movie that Thor does not have the power that he thinks he does while he's on Midgard. And the implication certainly is it's because Odin took it away from him. Well, like, it could be, like, you know, do Asgardians just not have—is it kind of like a reverse Clark Kent thing? Like, Asgardians are not as powerful. To me, it's an important moment because it shows, no, 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 a normal Asgardian would be much stronger than a normal human. It is specifically about what happened with Odin that Thor doesn't have that. Like, Volstagg has a power here that Thor doesn't. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, yeah. And, you know, we talked about how Thor never does things halfway. This movie could take a lesson. Like— if you're going to bring something like that in, and in this case, they didn't, they cut the scene. But no, you you follow up on that. Like, let's explore this. Let's discuss this. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is the one thing from this whole deleted scene that I really wish that they kept because it really does um, kind of get to that point that otherwise isn't really addressed. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could have had a nice moment where, like, it's Thor who wants to help and can't and Volstagg has to do it or like some... Even as I say that, actually, that sounds remarkably trite, but like there could have been a way to do it. Who knows? I'm not a writer, but. Well, I I think that it speaks to like, I mean, we're going to have, you know, the Destroyer, you know, we'll be talking about coming up soon as far as a battle with, between all of these people and the Destroyer when it comes down here. And I think that that sort of moment of seeing like this is a person who has abnormal strength for for being on this particular planet and still is getting thrashed by this particular thing, like, that would really help sell that, I think, you know, mm -hmm. just, yeah. to, just to emphasize how how strong all of these things are right. at this particular moment. Uh, well, I think we've had a lot to say about this minute and the deleted scene. Is there anything of the last things either you want to bring up? I think we, we covered it all. Cool. Well, I, I've hit kind of everything I can think of, but for our listeners who might just want to get, like, they can't believe that you're not going to be on the podcast anymore after tomorrow. They want more Miles or Elizabeth content. Is there anything I haven't asked about yet where people can find other stuff you're doing? We've talked about the lightning and the storm. I've talked about <laughs> Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Elizabeth, you've talked about uh, your, your, your food life on the internet. Those are most of the, uh, of the things I do believe. Great. Well, I always want to give people that last chance. Um, as always, folks, if uh, really glad you're enjoying this. I hope you're checking out all the other great Next Real podcasts uh, that are out there. 
I also have part of the Ethical Family Family Podcast, which does superhero ethics and Star Wars universe. Please check those out. Please check out all the great things that our guests are doing, all the great things happening on the next Real Family Podcasts. And most importantly, have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.